0: In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced, Silicon Reel, it's about the people. Okay guys, here we go. This is Silicon Reel, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Uh, I'm Brian Rose. I also host London Reel, which is a similar format. We got three guys in the room. We try to figure some things out. We've had uh, politicians like George Galloway. We've had Max Kaiser on here yelling about Bitcoin. Uh, We've had Howard Marks talking about smuggling drugs. Uh, It's all good, but we're here to talk about tech. Uh, My co-host today is entrepreneur Colin Pyle, who uh, runs uh, the online language school Lingos. Uh, You've got new coffee pods coming out with crew. Cafe what's going on
1: yeah crew cafe is coming along we biopods coming out in the new year it's really exciting that's awesome uh, yeah 8 billion aluminum pods and espresso puts in landfills every year so if we can crank into that market a little bit and save the world at the same time look at you happy days so Kickstarter 94% or so going on so uh, yeah congrats on that that's a big yeah. goal yeah yeah, you know? yeah that's good. That's nice to run it's that along, It's coming along really well. Okay. So exciting.
0: Awesome, man. Thanks for being yeah. here. Our guest today is Mr. Kirk Wiley, who is the executive chairman and co-founder of OpenGamma, uh, which is a London-based financial technology startup that provides open source risk and trading analytics software for the capital markets industry. Pretty good? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, it's been described as the future of quantitative finance. You've had three rounds of equity investment for I think about twenty three million dollars. Yep. Uh, Series A from Excel Partners, Series B uh, by First Mark Capital, and Series C by my old employer of nine years, ICAP PLC. Kirk, welcome to Silicon Rail.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having
0: me. Cool, man. Thanks for being here. You know, you you have a a funny accent. What are you doing in London, first of all?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I get that a lot. Uh, (laughs) You do? I do. I I Uh, I, most of the time get accused of being Canadian these days. Um, Is that good or bad? See,
1: I always get accused of being American.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Uh, You know, uh, depending on on the audience, I'll definitely take Canadian. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I definitely (laughs) wished I sounded a little bit more Canadian. Sometimes, uh, sometimes. uh, About 10 years ago. 10 years ago was hard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, No, I was born in Chicago, and then my family moved to Northern California when I was a kid. Uh, And then I lived in uh, the Bay Area until just about 10 years ago. Uh, I upped sticks and actually gave up San Francisco for uh, the beautiful weather of London. Uh, And I've been here ever since. And you weren't in finance before you came over, were you? No, pure tech. I I was one of those uh, Silicon Valley tech prima donna dudes, you know, started my first company at 23, uh, which was a complete and utter failure. Um, get that out of the way. Yeah. It got, it got, it got the first failure out of the way. It made every mistake that I think you could possibly make product mistakes, founder mistakes, corporate governance mistakes, hiring mistakes. It just, it, it was, it was dire. Um, and, but I never worked for a large company when I was in, uh, Silicon Valley, never did anything with finance. Um, and then when I moved over to London, I kind of looked around at the scene and 10 years ago, there really wasn't a whole heck of a lot happening in tech startups. I mean, you had a few, Excel was still uh, investing out of the Silicon Valley funds. Uh, You had Balderton that was trying to do deals, but they hadn't broken off. Well, they were still benchmark at the time. So Balderton had broken off from benchmark and Index was just kind of getting around, Uh, but they were sourcing a lot more internationally for deals. And I just realized there just isn't much activity going on. And this was boom days of uh, the city. So you know, I looked around and I said, well, one of the things that one of my tech mentors that I'm still close with uh, told me very early on in my career as a techie is always go where the smartest people are. right? Hmm. And the reason you do that as a techie is that one of two things is going to happen. Either first of all, they're going to stumble on the right product and the right execution, and you'll make a lot of money. But the second by being thing is around them. by being around okay. them and yeah. learning from them. But the second thing is, uh, if even if you don't make a lot of money, at least you're learning, right? So whereas if you're the 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 one superstar in a bunch of, of kind of mediocre people, um, you're not gonna learn anything, right? So I looked around and all the smart guys were working in hedge funds. Um, and so I ended up going to work for a hedge funds. So I worked for a company that did all of the risk and trading software for Vega asset management. And when I joined, Vega was about $6 billion under management. It grew uh, to about 15 overall. So it was, at the time, that was a mega fund. Um, it was Europe's second largest hedge fund. Rumors of what we were doing would move uh, interest rates globally. It was crazy. Uh, and then I left when it was five bills. So they, they, had, a, they had a pretty bad year, uh, couldn't pay me anymore, and then started working for an investment bank.
0: Okay, what, what year was that? Roughly oh uh, nine?
2: No, no, no. I I started Open Gamma at the beginning of oh9 okay. So I started working for uh, KBC Financial Products in oh six oh seven, and then I found out at the end of two thousand eight that the company no longer required my services. Uh, uh, apparently, when you are winding down the company, um, you and you are choosing to not. Build any new software, uh, you don't need a chief software architect anymore. So <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, that makes sense. You know.
0: So, so you're saying there was very little startup when you first got to London, let alone fintech startup. So it's funny because we always are running into fintech. Right. Obviously, we're in London; it's one of our greatest strengths. Yep. It seems from talking to you're the 25th person on here or 26th. Um, but uh, back then, like there wasn't any fintech; that no. that term wasn't used. Regularly. all
2: the hedge funds in Mayfair yeah, yeah, I mean it, right. look at me, I was working at a hedge fund in Mayfair, yeah, right exactly. like that, you know I, my 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 window looked straight onto Mount Street gardens. Right, i I right. know exactly how much that building cost. It was absolute ridiculous times <laughs> um, but now i so I think you're right there's a lot of fintech going on in London, and I think it, it's something that you know the kind of establishment you know has started to realize is going on they've also realized that it isn't as centered on you know silicon roundabout as some of the other consumery type stuff you know we're much more scattered. You know, there, there are some fintech guys that are around here. There are people that are in the city proper. There's uh, us and a couple other people like Cashflow that are down in Bankside. Uh, I actually did buy SiliconSE1.co.uk as a joke. Um, and there are people in Canary Wharf. So uh, Level39 is doing a great job at, at setting up, you know, some kind of fintech presence in Canary Wharf. And you know, so you're starting to see the press realizing what's going on. Uh, the prime minister's office has actually realized, and they've been starting to do uh, functions to kind of say, look, you know, this is an area of tech where, you know, London is not in also-ran. You know, London is the capital of the world for this type of stuff. Uh, there is a natural gravitational pull here that we should exploit. Is London the best in fintech? Yes, You can honestly say that.
0: And that's not because you're vested interest. I mean, and that's not because you maybe are one of the better technology companies. It is
2: better than than New York. It's absolutely, I think it's a better environment. Um, So just as a story, when we were getting going in 2009, uh, we had a, um, we had an, offer I'm not sure how serious it was uh, from the VC firm that had backed my first uh, startup to drop what we were doing and get on planes to San Francisco and by the time we landed we would have a bank account open we would have you know money coming in we would have visas sorted we would have desks and phones and everything if we would if we would start open gamma in Silicon Valley uh, hmm. and we said no right uh, and then when Excel came on board uh, they sat us down they said look you know we're a global firm we have no problem investing anywhere in the world uh, where do you want open gamma to be right? Because anywhere in the world that you want it, if you want it in New York, if you want it in Chicago, if you want it in Hong Kong, if you want it in Dubai, anywhere that you want it, we can make this happen. Um, And we said, no, London. And we said, why? Uh, Which is, you know, we have the talent that understands capital markets better than anyone else. We have a natural kind of gravitational well for tech talent Europe-wide. And we have a fantastic time zone. Uh, you know, you can, from London, you've got overlap, you know, you're at the office, you can be at the office or be on a phone call with Sydney or Tokyo or Hong Kong or Singapore. And you've got a good amount of overlap with, uh, Chicago and New York, uh, at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. For foreign exchange markets, it was always perfect because, you know, you come in the morning and it's Asia you go home at night and it's New York. So well, how far is New York behind
2: or is New York a close second or in your mind, where does it rank when FinTech, when it comes to London? You know, I, I think, interestingly, if, if, you take a look at FinTech across America, uh, it's, it, okay. I, you know, Open is a capital markets company, right? Like we don't do anything for retail at all. Uh, you know, if, if you don't work for, you know, ICAP or a hedge fund or an investment bank or a pension fund or a clearinghouse or something like that, you, you're not really going to get any utility out of it. You're just wasting your time. You're better just using Excel because it's a better tool for the job. Um, so in capital markets, New York is second, but we're actually seeing some more interesting stuff happening in Asia uh, that are targeting spe- you know, problems that are specific to the Asian market. One of the things that's interesting about the US, though, in the retail and consumer side, the stuff that you know, typical people might understand that right. don't work in the industry, is that it's a lot more scattered than it is uh, in, in Europe. Um, you know, Square uh, is not squares in, uh, Portland or like Pacific Northwest, yeah. uh, Simples up in, in Pacific Northwest. Um, you've got people doing payment stuff in all manner of random places. You're not seeing as much of a concentration, uh, in New York. They're not selling to banks, so they don't need to be Correct. in the banking centers. Right. Okay.
0: Now, now we've had a few FinTech companies on, we had Transferwise. you know, um, mm-hmm, right. you know, we've had Stripe, we've had just recently, um, digital shadows, yeah. you know, but these are, these are more, uh, um, there's some consumer plays. Digital Shadows isn't really consumer, yeah. but you're very specific. And I just quickly explain to people, if you could, you know, how your play has nothing to do with consumers. It's a to business play, and like what the capital markets are, and and uh, yeah. yeah. Tell so, us about Open Gamma.
2: So when tell uh, us about the name first. Yeah. So this was one of the things when we had our one of the very first like intro meetings with a VC. Uh, we didn't have a name yet. It was just this idea, um, and, and we met with the guy, and, and he said, well. Th- sounding kind of interesting, uh, do you have a name for it yet? And we said, well, you know, we've, we've kind of been using a working title of, of Open Gamma. And he goes, that, do you own the domain names? I'm like, not yet, but they're available. He's like, I want you to leave this meeting, immediately get to a computer and buy the domain names. And we now own every permutation under the sun, misspellings. You know, It's, it's ridiculous. The, the, we tested the name before we kind of launched with it. And we walked up to people in the industry and we said, you hear of a product or a company called OpenGamma What do you think they do? And the first thing people that were in our target audience uh, said is, sounds like an open source derivative system. We're like, that's pretty. Ding, pretty. ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah. um, it does sound a bit like that. Of course, I was in the industry. <laughs> yeah, it depends
0: who
1: you ask.
2: Some yeah. people might say it sounds like a fraternity. <laughs> like a gamma. Yeah, like a, a
0: gamma welcome to yeah, everyone. Exactly. Well, we, gamma, we, yeah. we,
2: <laughs> we feel bad because there is another open source project called Open Gamma uh, that's on X ray crystallography analysis. Right. And we feel bad because you can't Google them at all anymore. Um, but it was just this little SourceForge one-man project. And we felt bad. And we actually got in touch with him and said, hey, we just want to let you know what's about to happen. Is that you know, a VC-backed startup is basically going to destroy any hope that you have uh, of getting Googled at all. <laughs> um, would you like some assistance in changing the name? Would you like us to kind of pay you for the SourceForge bit just to compensate you for this? He never got back in touch. So we tried to do the right thing.
0: It's quite what a strong arm tactic, you know. People wouldn't argue that's
2: the right thing. Well, <laughs> that's like a mafia style. You know, there's 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 a reason why you know trademarks cover very specific areas of business. Is uh you know the, the, nobody's going to confuse his project with ours, right? Like sure. X-ray crystallography. I, I don't even know what that means. It, it's yeah. <laughs> I think I know what it means. Uh, okay, I, right. I believe their gamma is about gamma rays right. or something, right. okay. rather okay. than our gamma, which is about the Greek. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, when Okay, so in kind of layman's terms, uh, when you interact with a retail banking institution, um, you give them money uh, and they do something with that money, right? That, that's the, the fundamental thing. And whether that's a pension where you're putting money in and then they're investing it in some form uh, to give you money later on, or whether that's uh, you know putting money in the bank or taking a loan out or something like that, that's the kind of retail side of... Uh, of the banking and financial services industry. And it's pretty understandable because you deal with those types of things every day. I'd say most people have no idea where that money's going. Nope. No, yeah, they, they think there's <laughs> just this big pot or, or they honestly think that, Actually, what happens is they put their money in a in a savings account in a bank, and then the bank uses that to make mortgage uh, amounts, right? And that's part of what goes on, but that's not where the money is actually going on, because it turns out that that's really bad from a banking perspective, both in terms of the return that they make and in terms of their ability to handle events like all of a sudden, you know, twenty percent of their mortgages uh, pay off all at the same time, right? All of a sudden, they're, they're In bad situation, so
0: Northern Rock. Does that sound familiar?
2: Northern Rock. So
0: non-diversified,
2: non-diversified. So, or when you put money into a pension here in the UK, uh, if it's not self-directed, if you're not just investing directly in the stock market, um, then they're going to balance out. A whole bunch of factors, and trying to figure out what asset classes that they need to invest in in order to get a good enough return that your pension is worth something, uh, as well as handling any possibility of you know egregious loss if something bad happens. That side of the industry is capital markets. Is what happens after you give the money the banks. So it's it's stock market, but stock market is the simplest thing in, in the world um, to deal with. And it's something that, that a lot of people deal with. It's bonds, it's futures, it's options on equities and futures. It's things called interest rate swaps where, you know, I agree to pay Colin a year for the next 20 years. And he agrees to pay me a floating rate based on an index that then gets manipulated by people at certain (laughs) evil derivatives,
0: man, evil
2: derivatives, they're all bad Uh, credit default swaps and, (laughs) uh, no comment and CDOs. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when I was at KBCFP, uh, I built a system to help, uh, structure and trade, uh, synthetic CDO squares, which is something that was so insane that, that I looked at and I just said really people are we're, we're and they're like yeah we're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year off these things
0: um yeah, i think there was a cubed deal as well
2: but there, there was a well that was an abs cube
0: okay uh, well that's all on the show. all right so you sell the people the software that they use to manage their risk ultimately. yeah
2: yeah because at the end of the day one of the things that's interesting about these products is you can figure out what a stock portfolio is worth in a microsecond right you just check the stock exchange it says you have these stocks they are worth this amount of money. It's a very simple uh, calculation. Even figuring out what one of these things is worth at any given moment in time it is a mathematical problem. And so the amount of data that you need, the amount of mathematics that has to go on, the amount of you know, processing power that you need to throw at it, the amount of historical data you need to store, there are all these things that are that are pretty fundamental to operating in the derivatives market and that everyone needs uh, that is gonna play in them. And then that's what we do is we make the software to allow people in capital markets to understand understand their portfolio which is what is called risk in the industry
0: and traditionally in in these companies they have their own proprietary systems they run their risk in their own specific way which has led us to a host of problems in the past you're doing this open source piece which must be a tough sell at first uh it's very unique that business model when you guys started it um how has that been and also you've had to pitch to banks which we've had people in here talking about uh, is a long process so explain but, the open side of
1: things. So yeah, com- yeah, so it's completely I'll give it over to them. Yeah, the the, can-
2: the vast majority of what we call our intellectual property footprint Which is a fancy way of saying our source code uh, is released under uh, an open source license and what that means is that we retain the copyright and we put it out there for anyone to download and use and modify and do whatever they want. And we give them a license that says, essentially, you can do whatever you want with this, except sue us, right? So okay. it's, it's... If the, it doesn't work, it's yeah. not our fault. And, and, and we're using what's known as the Apache Public License, uh, which has one other bizarre thing, which actually did happen at one point in the open source community, which says, and by the way, if we put code in here that we have a patent on, we give you a limited royalty-free grant to use that patent. Because somebody okay. snuck some code into a project, uh, had a patent on, on the implementation, and then started suing people, right? Okay. So that, that's that's where the Apache license comes about. Right. Um, So they can do whatever they want, but what they can't do is, first of all, sue us if anything goes wrong. Um, We also don't do what's known as IP indemnification, which is seems like it's a type of thing that you would never get involved in unless you're a bank, right? Because banks got sued by SCO when they went after Linux. So if you remember, if you go back to the SCO case where they said, we actually own stuff that's in Linux and we want all this money, um, they didn't sue uh, Red Hat or IBM or anybody else. First people they sued were JP Morgan. The users of the software. The users. Okay. Right. And so... They're all worried. So, you know, they're they also that so you have this thing called IP indemnification where our commercial customers we sign a contract with them that says if anyone sues you and says that we violated their, their intellectual property, we will defend you in court, right? Like we are taking the, that liability off of you and we're guaranteeing a, a competent defense. Um, and then, as well, what they don't get is they don't get confidentiality, right? And when you're dealing with a bank, the thought that the only way that their techies can interact with the authors of this big complex system is via Googleable forums is absolutely anathema, and you know. And then finally, it's just a basic support arrangement. You know, it, it's an insurance policy. Um, what we do is fundamental to the operation of any of these firms, whether it's a hedge fund or a bank or an insurance company or anything else. Uh, rolling something like that that is that fundamental out into production without having some form of support contract is the type of thing that if something goes wrong, that's a career limiting move. I mean that's like so somebody gets sacked.
0: So you're saying you you put it out in the open, but of course they're gonna need you if they use if they use yourself. Right?
2: We know of one of at least one company, uh, that is getting ready to go into production and they have not paid us a dime. Um, so we, it is absolutely possible. People can do it if they want to. Um, we only found out through like rumors and whatnot, um, who it was. Uh, but, we know of a firm in India that has built a commercial software product that is embedding open Gamma in it, and they've never paid us any money. So okay. it, it's, a, it's a real, th- you know, the open source part is real. It's, it isn't just some gimmick or anything. Um, and we know that there are people that are starting to use the source code in uh, masters in financial engineering programs because here's a production grade system. It isn't some toy system that somebody came up with just as, as a pedagogical exercise. This is actually studying what a real system that does this for real looks like. Um, but this is open source
0: thing is a new phenomenon, right? It's it, you know with the Linux and all that stuff. It's it's let's put this out there, let people use it first, and then maybe down the line you obviously make money by them getting contracts. I was reading the story of Google Maps recently, right. and when they first put it out there. There was some guy in San Francisco that took the map and overlaid it over the real estate market and all of a sudden put out this thing. And Google was like, we can either sue him or hire him. Right. And then they hired him. And now Google Maps is everywhere. And yep. now they're making money off like the top 1% of the clients that actually make money and everyone else uses it for free. But that's a, quite a forward thinking idea, right? Traditional software companies would never Correct. open it Especially up.
2: Especially in the
1: financial world.
2: It's oh, yeah. Forward- yeah. Right? I mean, right. you know, I can know about the finance side, but if you, if you take the long view of computing history... Open source is actually the oldest concept in uh, so- in software, right? It used to be that people made all their money on the hardware, right? And so they just gave you the software. IBM gave you the operating system. They gave you the tools. Because otherwise, you've got this big beast that you're paying millions of dollars for. Um, what are you going to do with it? Right. You have okay. no idea what to do with it. So they gave away the software. And then Microsoft came along. Well, it, it was more people realized actually I think it was like IBM and whatnot that started realizing what was going on and that they could actually make money by having value-added services and value-added software and so the software industry uh, got started so this is this predates Bill Gates um, this is you know back in in dawn of computing 60s that that you actually had a commercial software industry um, in finance so really everything is now kind of, Eventually going back there, where there's an assumption, I think, in most industries that if you're a technologist buying a technology as opposed to a business person buying a product, right, you kind of go open source first. And and there's very few technology led companies out there that are not leading with open source, especially in, in the core technology space. So, you know, all of the most recent databases that have come out. All of them are open source.
0: Okay, tell right. us a bit about Open Gamma. We always ask, like, what have you done? What are you going to do? You've raised quite a chunk of funding. I mean, Series C. We haven't had many people here that have done that kind of funding.
1: We had uh, Halo on the other week, and yeah, they raised a ton of money. And, but, but otherwise, not no. many
0: people that have yeah. raised those those kind of chunks. So, what's that money for? And, and what's been what's it been like the last four years? For you guys? Well, you started off as CTO, right?
2: Yeah, I started off as a CTO uh, and uh, acting CEO, uh, and then uh, the board decided uh, to drop the acting part uh, and and make me like for. CEO. Um, And then we kind of went into growth phase um, and I realized that I was absolutely hating my job as CEO. Um, Growth phase would be more sales and less development, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons why we've raised as much money as we have, um, and it, you know, we've done Series C, but realistically, our Series A was slideware, right? Like we had a PowerPoint deck, a uh, keynote actually, um, and that that was pretty much it. So it was, it was really a seed investment. In And anybody else would call it a seed investment okay. uh, in the common parlance because we didn't really have anything. It wasn't a traditional series A. So you kind of, it's just that in the nomenclature, we can't do a, a series minus one type right. of thing. You, convention is A, B, C. So realistically, that last round was more of a series B because the first round was, was, you know, just a couple million dollars and it was done in, in two tranches. Right. Okay. Um And... You know realistically, almost all of that has funded development so this is big big software that is very expensive to build. How big's
0: your team that works um on
2: that? we've got thirty five people globally uh of which uh I think twenty something are in r and d um We have, I mean, like if you consider sales, we have three people working in sales. That's it, right? You know, one in uh, New York that also looks after Chicago, one in London, and then one in Paris. That's it. Um, and the skills that I had and the natural temperament that I had that made me phenomenal at, at guiding this product driven R and D driven company that was, you know, had, had to be really nimble and scrambling for anyone that might think to pay us money while we're building this thing out and being very, you know, reactionary and, uh, you know, those skills, I great at those skills, um, the the running of sales and delivery machine, which is really what you need when when you're kind of turning the corner into full on commercialization, uh, that's just not me, and I was hating it, right? Okay, you know, and so uh, this I happens brought- a lot with founders, yeah. right? So I was at the founders conference in Dublin, uh, and the number of people there that were founder or co-founder and CTO. Uh, we are like, we were just chatting about it. It's like, it, it sucks. You get to the point where you're really selling and, you know, do you really want to be, you know, beating up a sales force to make sure that CRMs being updated and that all of the probability weightings are down so you can get you know, a <laughs> correct pipeline to deliver to your, uh, you know, do you really want to be going in and, and dealing with, you know, Having customers that decide they're going to light a fire under your ass for some random reason, and then you know snap their fingers and want the CEO uh, in the room, uh, you know, within the next 24 hours, it's not it's not a very enjoyable thing if you're a techie. And so, we brought on a chief operating officer, um, who whose whose job was to do that, um, and. You know, he's experienced guy, uh, from a very successful financial technology company in a similar space, um, experienced at running sales organizations, running delivery, doing all of that stuff, the real commercial side, and I personally couldn't delegate sufficiently for him to do his job. And so I sat there and said, hold on, I brought on the COO in order to do the stuff that I'm finding myself doing and hating and, and not doing a great job at, um, This is stupid. You know, the whole plan was to eventually make Mas uh, CEO. Uh, So I just decided to do it. I decided to do it in four months rather than four years. So it's (laughs) like, okay, Mas, uh, we know we brought you on as as COO, but um, yeah, you're going to be CEO faster than you thought.
0: Okay, so that happened quicker. How many employees are you now, uh, and how many clients do you have roughly? And then, like, where are you guys going with this? Do you have enough? Do
2: you have enough money for now? Are there more people coming on board? So, you know, I mentioned the amount of money that, that we've raised. Uh, so much of it has gone into R and D. So we're a lot so, of employees. And yeah, that's a yeah. lot of software development. It's a lot. Well, and the R
1: and D is primarily just salaries.
2: Yeah, but it's, it, it's yeah. headcount. right? Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, you take a look at our. Uh, but offices are not that expensive internet don't have that many computers right. um although we and it's we, highly skilled our hr as well highly, highly, skilled. highly skilled. right we aren't competing with right. uh okay i'm not competing with with halo for talent right, right. and by the way I, I know some of the halo guys we share an investor uh you know i see them at conferences i love the company i love the product um I, I don't use it as much as I use their main competitor, but you know that that's a whole separate matter. Um, but we're not competing with Halo for talent, right? We're not even competing with some of the less skilled, I would say, banks for talent. We know exactly who we're competing with for talent. and we're and we're not competing with our competitors <clears throat> either, right? We're competing with Goldman Sachs and JP. Morgan and Merrill Lynch. And Brevin Howard and uh, who else? Bluecrest and you know these are the the abs, Renaissance Technologies and uh, you know for, at one point SAC, but now they're shedding people away as fast as they can. Um, that's who we compete with, right? And and those people cost money. And then you look at our quants, right? And and for for people that aren't from the industry, a quant is a, a quantitative analyst and. It's someone that has a PhD minimum in a highly numerical discipline, either applied mathematics or high energy physics. Um, so we have four people that have worked at CERN uh, that that work for us. Um, you know, they the, and and then they've gone to and it's an apprenticeship thing, right? You you have to start out the ground floor at a bank, and then we've got you know those guys. Every single person on our team is is. Reasonably compensated, but all of those guys know that they could get more money, cash wise, uh, outside the firm.
0: Right. So you're competing with a lot of these banks that are off- trying to offer a similar service to these hedge funds, and you're not even necessarily competing with other software people. Not necessarily.
2: No. Okay. Where are you
0: guys
1: headed from
2: here? So uh, global domination. Awesome. Um, Spoken e- like a true American. You know, <laughs> when when we set out, <laughs> that's
1: when they realize you're not Canadian, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is it? Global domination.
2: You know, it, 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 this is a go big or go home play, and we knew that from day one. So we were very clear with the initial investors that this was going, that although it was gonna be a capital efficient company um, over time compared to what it would have cost to build this technology 10 years ago when you physically couldn't even do it. I mean, I remember my first startup where, you know, it wasn't the case that everything was going on salaries. Computers, oh my, you know, we just to do basic development, you had to spend a couple hundred grand with Sun, Um, you know, Every computer was costing $10,000 minimum and the monitors were thousands and it was just, and you actually had to pay for software. I mean,
0: yeah, we had John Bradford from TechStars here and he said back in the day he raised 20 million at the 99, that's the equivalent of 2 million today, just because you know, you have so much quicker access to so much more uh, capital investments. Yeah. And open open
2: source, you You know, know. you don't have to start out and say, I'm going to have to pay for this framework and that technology and anything else. You You may end up bringing in commercial stuff over time, but you just start out pure open source. So you're not paying anything, and then you figure out where it makes sense to potentially bring in commercial stuff later on. Um So you had to go big. So we had to go big. And you want all the market. You want like 90% of the market. So the the okay, the 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 rule of thumb for a successful open source entrant into a market, whether that market is, you know, software frameworks. Well, like you know, Spring, or whether it's databases like Oracle or MySQL, or whether it's operating systems like Linux, is that the total size of the market of the, actually shrinks by forty to sixty percent, right? So the, the market actually gets smaller. You are attacking the pie directly, but that open source uh, entrant ends up getting forty to sixty percent of what's left. Wow! Right? Interesting. So our goal, and, and we've been very open with this from day one, is to become the de facto standard industry-wide for risk management. Period. Right? I, I, uh, we need to get to a point that other open source technologies have gotten to, which is if you know you need to solve problem X, and in our case, that's derivative pricing and risk management, you grab Open Gamma first. And then you figure out if you have to do other stuff. But you, there's just no thought in your mind. The, the thought of starting a project at a bank or a hedge fund not using open gamma would be a you know career-limiting move. You just wouldn't even think to do it.
0: And where are you guys at now? Like, How many clients do you have roughly? And where do you want to be in a few years?
2: We're uh, just under uh, – we're, we're still in single digits in clients. Um Although we're we're you know it's the end of the year rush, so uh, we'll we'll have a, a fair number that are closing on uh, December thirty second. Uh, I, I have to stay in the country. Uh, I'm actually at a uh, friend's house out in Kent um, for a. Uh, New Year's Eve dinner party, and uh, I had to check with them in advance and make sure that they have a, a printer and scanner so that I don't have to right. physically bring one with me uh, okay. for all of the the deals where there has to be a timestamp on the email before twelve oh one. So it could be one of these things while the countdown's going. I'm 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 hitting send on my email rather than raising a glass of champagne. And you won't be drinking till midnight, right? There there's I don't think there's any rules on on, on executing impaired <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. There probably should be. <clears throat> it, it could theoretically. Honestly, <laughs> the way these deals work, I, I don't sign until you know several other people, including counsel, have told me to sign. So uh, I'm just the final. Uh, I'm just the final pen. Um, so, you know, we. I think we're still early. So you know, the types of people that are that are coming on board are still somewhat early adopters, um, because you know the technology is. It's growing and it's expanding and it's changing and it's changing as a result of people using it and it's for the better. And so, you know, there are some people that are going to be die hard holdouts until they're dying breath on using expensive proprietary in-house systems, right? It's just always. But eventually the people that are defending those decisions will retire is a simple fact of the matter. And then they won't have to be, be worried about job security anymore. Uh, and then the next wave of people will start bringing it in. So, you know, the, even just growth in the last year has been, you know, last year uh, around this time, we had, uh, you know, you could count uh, customers in one hand and not a single one was was fully in production. Um, whereas, you know, at the moment, we have people that are in production and we are you know, we've been much better at selling the vision and actually the industry has been changing a lot as well. So there are a lot of positive things in the industry for us and our message. Um, and you know, the line of business that I personally look after at the moment didn't exist this time last year. We had no idea that we would launch a product that we launched uh, a few months ago, um, this time last year, because nobody knew that, that it would be an issue in the industry.
0: You know, we always ask a couple hard questions about your business model. And the first one that struck me is, um, how do you sell a system to a a set of clients that are traditionally some of the most, you know, secretive, some of the most cult-like creatures in the industry? I mean, some hedge funds, they all read the same books. And like, it really is a mentality. It's a small number of headcount who make the decisions at the top. Um, How do you crack that that nut? You know, how do you get in there?
2: It's hard. uh, And uh, it's a lot of shoe leather. Um, So this is not a um, popular thing for a a software uh, company founder to say anymore, but we have an enterprise sales model, right? You know, we don't have a credit card, you know, use my Amex black card and deliver online and direction right there and then. This is an enterprise sales process. This is experienced software sales guys doing, you know, proper driven sales campaigns and, you know, having meetings with, you know, 50 people in an organization and, you know, nobody goes straight into like a signed contract. You know, it's, it's a pilot, you know, they'll try the software for three months. Uh, you know, they'll pay us something for it and then they'll make a decision. And, you know, just to give an example, uh, I'm, I'm going to be going straight back to the office after this to, uh, almost certainly close a deal that deal. We had the first meeting with that, uh, client almost exactly a year ago today. That was the first meeting and we are executing now. So one year sales cycle. (laughs) One year sales.
0: And that's not a bank, that's a hedge fund? Uh, Uh, I can't say who that is. Hedge
2: funds tend to move a lot quicker. Uh,
0: just for the record, he's on his second Dr. Pepper Zero.
2: We, it, when you opened both, when
0: you started, I was like, is this going to happen? And it, that's happening right now. Uh, so <laughs> so, so
2: on, <laughs> uh, we, we were discussing earlier on our website when there's a, the, the famous statistic of number of cans of Dr. Pepper Zero, and it isn't all Dr. Pepper Zero. Um, but we do have a caffeinated diet soda delivered by the, like, by the palate uh, every week. <laughs> Um, and every night the cleaners refill the fridge. We have two uh, soda fridges I- I- in London, one me- because the main kitchen was just too far away for the quants, so, because they're at the other end of the office, and they're like, we need something closer. Um, and so we, we 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 actually... That number is updated every month, and and it actually is updated with the number of cans of things that are brought in to the office.
0: And you're about 48,000 right now. So that's like that. where all your money's going.
2: That's where all our money's going. Uh, I- I- if that's the... Um, if that's the most expensive employee perk we're giving yeah, out, it's not bad. It, it's not a bad deal. What's Goldman spend on employee perks?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. R and D costs. Colin, what, what, am, what am I missing? What do you see? Yeah, here? I just, uh, I'd love to hear some of your ideas about competition in this space yeah. and some of the big players. Like when I was running, my, I, I used to run an FX company and I would mark to market my derivatives using Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty simple subscription based model. Yep. Maybe. Tell me a little bit about some of the competitors and
2: how you're different. So the number one, uh, both competitor and helper of us is build in-house, right? So we actually don't describe ourselves as a risk solution or a risk product. Uh, We really come in when there's been a decision made at senior levels that the requirements and flexibility and transparency and everything warrant an in-house built system. Um, but they want all of the customizability, the flexibility, the transparency, everything that they would, that they could only get from building in house with the time to market and, uh, ROI advantages of using an external system. So we come in and we say, look, here's the foundation, 20% of your app is going to be unique. Right, and it's going to be unique because you're not starting from scratch. There is no such thing as greenfield, right? You've got existing systems. You've got stuff that you need to interact with with exchanges and clearinghouses and counterparties, and you need to get trade feeds in. You've got market data coming from Bloomberg and Reuters and emails, and, and you've got like there's all this stuff that that, that is going to be unique. Um, we can optimize as much as of it as we can, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to do some work. Uh, but you start out with a clean framework. And you don't have to build, you know, the database work and you don't have to build a risk engine and you don't have to, you don't have to implement Black-Scholes-Murden for the 900th time and curve management, all these fiddly details. Um, So, you know, that's kind of competitor number one versus, you know, partner number one, right? right? Because if people didn't need that, basically if our traditional risk product competitors didn't suck so much... Uh, people wouldn't be going for build-in house. I mean, yeah. the, the, the competitive software out there, it has it all has some really good parts to it, right? It, it is mature, it is stable, it has been beaten down in production. You know, their bugs have been worked out. Uh, there's tons of features that we don't have. You know, they are they're gr- they're great systems in terms of the breadth and depth of the functionality that's there but they are horrible to work with. Right. I mean, you know, I, I actually had... To work with a, meaning changing them later or adding things just, and Just the, the experience. So right. I'll give examples of two products that people use in this space, both banks and uh, hedge funds, and I'm not going to name them. Um, but one it, when I gave this anecdote, I actually had a VC tell me to my face I was lying to him and ended the meeting because he said there is no way that a company is earning $150 million a year selling a product as bad as you just said, right? So one of them is, so both of them, and this is in in 2013, are two-tier apps, right? So they have a big, rich client that runs on the desktop, and they have a database server. That's it. Right, so th- there's no service-oriented architecture. There's no web front end. There's just it's a and, and all of the calculation happens on the desktop. So one of them, the 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 app that you have to run, is single-threaded, right? Completely single-threaded, and up until recently, uh, and this is recent within the last uh, 18, 24 months. Um, while it's processing anything, the whole machine locks up, right? Like the, the, because Windows keeps sending events to the app, and they're not pulling them off the event queue even, hmm. and so Windows just the whole system Stucks. locks. Yeah. It also can't handle overnight rolls, right? So an overnight roll is, is basically if you leave the app up overnight, uh, it will think today that is actually yesterday, right? So it needs to be shut down every res- night and, and restarted. It.
0: This is your competition.
2: Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it would take for a decent-sized portfolio uh, up to eight hours uh, for the app to launch in the morning. Um, still, this, still this is your competition today. Th- this was, they've, gotten, they've gotten that down to like an hour or two. Um, and so what everybody would do is they'd run it on Windows Terminal Servers and they everybody would have to have a script that at 12:30 a.m. turns it on it would turn it on so that it was ready for trading at 8:30 in the morning mm-hmm. um, that's app number 1
0: i've seen some really scary hacks in some banks in the past right. yeah where it's just like some excel script runs like the whole risk management for a whole desk and you're like are you kidding me yeah. when i
2: joined vega um the i ran it on excel for
1: a long time <laughs>
2: <Right>. <laughs> yeah it
1: was bad excel we was were, and we
2: were like manually putting mm-hmm. in figures it was yeah. when i joined vega their their risk system was a spreadsheet that had a button that said like go macro and and Mac and, Mac. And, yeah. and then you would <laughs> yeah. come back uh, <laughs> yeah. 8 hours later and if you were lucky if it p- didn't crash, yeah. pdfs would spit out the back end right right so uh, uh, yeah um so so that was that was competitor number 1 right. competitor number 2 well they 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 were quite a bit better than competitor number 1 because their thick desktop app uh, had two threads instead of one, so they had one thread to do the UI and one thread to do the processing. So at least it didn't cra- hang your entire machine. Okay. Um, but But their their biggest enhancement one year was they had a Windows 64-bit binary because it required it was requiring uh, like 16 gigs of RAM to run. And this was like a few years ago when people didn't have you know 128 gigs on the desktop. So right. so you're not worried about your competition. It uh, seems. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, we're why, these, why wouldn't they just buy out if they're t- turning over 150 million a year? Is that well, some, the, so the, 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 the biggest fintech to. company in the space right. uh, in the world is SunGuard, which you'd never heard of uh, unless you're in the space. But the the I mean, the most likely outcome for any startup, aside from failure, is acquisition, yeah. right? So. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of private equity guys that absolutely love fintech and capital markets because retail investors don't understand it, so the stocks tend to be undervalued. (laughs) Um, But private equity guys love it because once you get a sustainable business, uh, it's just throwing off free cash flow, right, which they know how to monetize. So you know you saw Vista recently that that basically spent a couple billion dollars in the last couple of years hoovering up all of this stuff into the new mysis right so there was the old mysis and then uh, there was stuff at Thomson Reuters, and then Vista bought the Thomson Reuters and all this stuff, but basically they just slapped all of this capital market stuff into Mysis, which is a private company they spent billions doing it mm-hmm. um so why don't they buy us? Um, I think one th- reason is that in Capital Markets Tech, it's not common to buy an early stage company as a, a strategic threat right they tend to buy free cash flow so they wait right. until you your revenue is starting to plateau at which point they say aha the revenue is kind of plateauing they look at the cash flow they figure out how much they can slash r and d and then they essentially price the cash flow so multiples on deals are right. you know usually 3 to 5x revenue um, not, you know, 10 to a hundred times revenue or right. infinity times revenue in the case of like an Instagram or, sure. or Snapchat or whatever. Uh, the second reason is they don't get it right. Like, like they don't understand open source, um, at all. Right. Like these guys are, you know, some of the, these founders are very idiosyncratic characters, Um, they've never experienced something like this. Uh, people are waiting to see because, you know, we may end up, you know, I'm, I'm just brutally honest. We may end up hitting the wall and realizing, okay, we can get far enough, which we've proven that we can get a number of good, high quality customers. Uh, but we might find out that we can't get enough to build a billion dollar business, right? That is entirely possible. Um, at which point we'll figure out what we're going to do, uh, but I think they're waiting to see that as well, is, that, right, is right. everybody wants to see the, the J-curve in action. Um, but I think they're starting to get worried uh, rather than, than just sitting around idly uh, figuring out. You know, they've, they've gone from being dismissive to being worried. So we know that the competitors have talking points on us. Uh, we know that we have lost deals recently to, uh, establish companies and we know why. And it's, it's, those companies have had a lot more time to polish stuff, mature things. They have more functionality. Um, and so, and we're fine with that because we know that in a few years, those customers will, will, will be at at that level and those customers will come to us because we have things that those guys will never have. Kirk, let me get your
0: perspective on the, on the London scene. I mean, you've been doing open gamma now for four years, you know, you're American, which brings a whole different perspective. What do you think London is lacking or what frustrates you about the scene? And what do you think is like the hidden gem here that you think can really make this, you know, a real global player when it comes to a tech tech city?
2: So uh, I'm American but I am also actually now a subject of Her Majesty so Me I took too. my British Britishness and uh uh yeah earlier <laughs> it's this year by a conflicting year. oath right Yeah what, what you, yeah What do
0: you pledge to the queen you pledge something to the queen right
2: Oh man there's the I forget whether I I think it's I did the soft. oath of allegiance not the pledge cuz the pledge had god in it and okay. you know it's I forget I mean I wasn't going to bother memorizing it right cuz they tell you to repeat after them uh, <laughs> so you're dual I am dual. I, I have two passports. Um, mm, me we,
0: too. It's cool. It's like you're, you're like Jason Bourne. No, no. no,
2: no my dad has Canadian and American. I just have Canadian. Okay. It's, you have to travel totally with one. Like
0: travel to States, you got to use your US one.
2: The only time I use my US one is to enter the US where yeah. it is a legal requirement that if you have an American passport, you must uh, enter the US with it. Otherwise, it is considered to be an implicit act of renunciation and they oh, really? may choose to strip you of your citizenship for doing it. Is it? Huh. Yeah. I, I always do that, but I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, no, because there's full passport transparency. So they'll have something in, in, on the screen. If you enter with, uh, with your British one, they'll have it on screen that you're actually an American as well. And and they'll warn you, mm-hmm. right? They're like, did, did you mean to do this? Um, cause I know people that are dual that had, uh, lost a passport and couldn't get an emergency done in time and had to, you know, family funeral type of thing. People are like, Ooh, you know, they they're just like, what are you doing? Um, it's great because you always go in the short line. It's right. awesome. Right. Um,
0: you don't want to mess with U.S. immigration. No, no. So you were saying you, yeah. you, okay, so, so you're, you're think, here to stay. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'm, I'm here to stay. Uh, well, I'm not going to retire in London, but, uh, you know, that's just because the Californian in me says there is no way you are going to spend the, the, the end years of your life dealing with six months without sun, um, which, is what the, what, which is what the winters are here. So Great city, though.
1: I think it's one true. of the, thi- the, 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 the lack of sun bothers me more than the weather, the, the rain. Okay. By far. It's been good lately.
0: Anyway, sorry, okay, you were sorry. saying.
2: Well, it rains more in San Francisco. It's right, just that yeah. it rains on more days here, here yeah. right? It's just the drizzle. And I mean, my, my fiance and I, we have to schedule, even if it's just a long weekend in Dubai or something, just somewhere where we will get winter sun, right? Because right. otherwise we just go. Insane. So, you have a sun lamp at home. We don't, <laughs> but it's not a bad idea. Um, so I'm a London taxi. I think one of the things that, that frustrated me for a while, although I think there's been enough recognition of this that it's starting to change, is the relentless fixation on shortage. Right? Shortage. 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 Shortage and we're in shortage just for the record yeah we are in shortage uh, but the, the reason why i found it kind of irritating is that in fact at one point when the you know the tech city map came out came out online and, uh, and Ooh, look it, it, like, and it had bars and hairdressers and like anyone that wanted to advertise as long as you had in, as long as you were in the right area. And, and the guy that actually did the development for it came to work for us and, and it hadn't launched when he came to work for us. And it he's like, Oh yeah, I did that. And I'm like, well, why, why will not it let me register? Fired. <laughs> it, it wouldn't let us register. He's like, Oh yeah, that's because you have to have an E in front of your postcode. They made me put that in. I'm like, or, or N, they had a special exemption for N1. And I'm like, really? And I actually got in touch with people, and there were people that were defending this, of saying, no, 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 we, we have to be this hyper-local thing, because it's the only way that we'll get people paying attention. But I think one of the things that it, it did early on is it focused, you know, what's what's been happening in shortage is, is there are a few... Big guys, you know, there's Huddle and Moo and Mind Candy and people like that. But there's a lot of like little tiny two man dudes, the two man shops. And, you know, when you start getting the real press looking in, they're like, this is two dudes working out of a pub. Is is that an actual company producing jobs? Um, whereas you've had the kind of enterprisey and, and media startups elsewhere in London for years now. You know, the, you want to be near your customers, so you know, media ones are out. You know, King King's nowhere near uh, nowhere near Shoreditch. They're in Soho. Then they're Soho because media type of business. Um, you know, we're in Southwark along with a bunch of other enterprise guys because it's the most convenient place to get to Mayfair, the city, or Canary Wharf. I'm 20 minutes door-to-door to to any one of those three. And those are the three largest financial centers in Europe, uh, each in their own right. So, you know, we were just all getting completely ignored. And the fact that, so I think that was one thing that was kind of negative for a while was this whole, you know, Silicon Roundabout is the end-all be-all and consumer internet is the only thing that matters. Um, And, you know, that's it, but that started to turn around a, a, a bit. I mean, the the tech city map now actually does include us on it. Hey, uh, uh, congratulations! Know, it <laughs> took <laughs> it took a while. Um, little victories. Little victories. Uh, the amount of fintech that was going on was also ignored, um, and that's one of London's big strengths. And and actually, I, I credit uh, Level Thirty Nine and Eric Vanderklee uh, of, of really kind of driving that agenda of saying, look, you know, the, there's a lot of these little consumer guys. And, and some of those guys will turn into massive companies. Some of them will, will shut down. It's, it's, it's a very Darwinian, uh, model. Um, but these, you know, finance and enterprise guys, you know, we've produced more man years of employment in this country than, you know, dozens of the little startups put together, right? Because it's a, it's a human intensive business. Um, and you know, The government is actually starting to realize it. So even the government's getting involved and saying, actually, we're going to kind of treat fintech as a special thing because it is something that we do better than any other city in the world. And, you know, Boris and the Corporation of London and, you know, people are starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, London tech is not just building mobile apps in Shoreditch and going to Shoreditch Grind and, you know, riding your bike from Hackney uh, every morning. And, you know, that that's not everything that's going on. Um, sorry, I, I, anybody from, from... I like a man that's opinionated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not holding back. It's good. good. No, I, I don't disagree. The, 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 you know, it's, it's true. Yeah. Sure. And so I, I think that's, I think one of the other things, though, that, I have a lot of anecdotes, but I don't know whether I really have an, a, a strong opinion on it. Is the tendency to leave uh, London to get funding, um, you know, set up a business, do all that stuff? You know, I've got two friends that that tried. To do consumer-y type uh, apps and startups here. And they both left. And one of them's now living in San Francisco and one of them's living in Vegas. Um, they left to get funding, or they, they left, left to get funding and get more opportunity. Okay. And you know, I think there are definitely cases where it is better for companies. To relocate to the states, uh, at least you know the West Coast for better funding opportunities, better hi- sometimes better hiring opportunities. Although right now, trying to hire in Silicon Valley, it would be much better uh, doing you know what Huddle's done and you know have kind of sales and execs over there and keep your development here because you know we're cheaper than Silicon Valley at the moment. and Quite frankly, we're better, um, and you don't have to deal with with all the the you don't have to deal with all the fuck you money problems that Silicon Valley has, right? right.
0: What does London need? Like what's good? What's things getting
2: in your way right now or getting in our way here more than anything? Um, so I hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, series A, crunch, blah, seed, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we hear it like, a lot. We hear it a lot. I hear it a lot. Um, I think some of that's true. I think some of that is also entrepreneurs not taking the hint if you have one data point which is i cannot get funding for my startup yeah it's dangerous to extrapolate that into there is an insufficient funding climate in london for startups like me it's not a popular thing to say but there are people that will always have startups that will not get funded and should not get funded Right. It may be that the team isn't strong enough. It may be that they don't know how to pitch correctly. It may be that the product isn't strong enough. You know, there are all of these things that that can go on. Uh, and that really impacts, right? It, it, it could be any one of those. Um, just saying I have a startup and I have an app and you could be technically brilliant. You could be, you know, have something that's, that's great, but it, it, it's not going to be a billion dollar business. You know, you're not going to get venture capital Attention! If you don't have, uh, you know, certain things in your track record, if you don't understand the domain, if you haven't done some of this before, you're not going to get the type of funding that you may think that you want, right? And so, I think it's dangerous to extrapolate from people that haven't had investment and say that is a sign that there is no investment that just may be a sign that their startups or teams or whatever, aren't strong enough, or they don't know how to pitch correctly. Right. Um, so I think that that's, that's one thing that I would say, because, you know, if you look, Excel is doing deals, index is doing deals. Uh, you could, who, uh, invested in, in, uh, us in the series C, uh, which is the, the VC arm, the early stage VC arm of ICAP, uh, they're doing deals. Um, you know, Amadeus is doing deals, Passion is doing, there are a lot of deals that are getting done at all levels of the chain, you know, from, you know, our last round was $15 million in total to people doing a couple hundred grand to writing convertible notes. There are deals getting done, right? And the volumes of the numbers of deals are going up. Um, It's just not everyone's firm gets funded because not, and, and this is the thing about the Silicon Valley and talking about the series A, crunch, right? I don't think it's a series A crunch. I think it's a, the angel market there is, is completely uncritical of anything. It's just, there's so much money. And so many people that have said, I'm going to do some deals that, that it's, you know, handshake, boom, here's some money. So angel, angel rounds are undifferentiated. So there's no real, uh, evaluation going on, which means that y- you're getting firms that are failing to get, uh, funding later on in the cycle. Right. So right. That, that's one explanation. They're just saying,
1: my company's worth half a million. Here's here's 15%. They get their money and they're on their way. And then they try to raise more. And now someone actually breaks down their business. Yes. Right.
2: Right. Breaks down the business, breaks down the team, looks at the numbers. Yeah. Um, just more sophisticated investors that are taking more time to make exactly, um, it. Exactly. So
0: if there's no real Series A crunch, is there any
2: barriers right now? You know, employment's not one, you're saying. So I think what... London needs that we have not had is we need a couple of the firms that have gotten big and profitable to have some form of exit. And we need that so that there are more people out there doing two things that are critical for Silicon Valley. The first is you have newly minted guys who have their fuck you money, who are doing some angel deals. Because you still need cases where people are chucking one or two hundred grand in just, just to see what's going to hit. But the second is you have teams that are experienced at working together that are setting up new ventures. right? Because one of the things that is the most important in doing team selection at a VC stage is have these guys worked together before. Right. You know, a mate that you met down uh, at, at the pub, you don't know if he's any good. You don't know if he can actually do his job. You don't know what he's going to be like under stress, under fire, you know, doing, you know, endless uh, nights under deadlines getting yelled at my customers and all these things that are going to happen. Right. you like you haven't seen him under fire. Um so, you know, you take a look at, at all the various waves in, in Silicon Valley. Every time you have one of these mega companies go public or something, uh, you know, you end up have you know, you've got the PayPal mafia and you've got yeah. all, you know, people that have already left Twitter and doing other things and Facebook and Google and Sun and Apple. And, you know, this is, this is the way you build a strong enough ecosystem to sustain long-term value um, is by having people that have gone through this process together and experience it and then set up. So, you know, mind candy, you know, eventually they'll uh, go public or get bought or whatever, you know, when they have an exit, they'll, there'll probably be, you know, it won't be Michael Ackman Smith probably, but you'll have a, a few other groups that say, ah, I've got my money, you know, I've done my my six month to year commitment. Now we're going to leave and do the next thing. And by the way, I've got, you know, I, I, it's me. Uh, I'm a back-end guy, and I've got a UI guy, and we had somebody strong over there. And all of a sudden, you've got a pre-gelled team that knows what they're doing. You know, that that, that looks pretty good from a VC's perspective. Um, so it's just a matter of time. Yeah. In your, in your, I think it's a matter of time. And 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 by the way, I don't think we need the megas. I don't think we need a fifty billion dollar uh, IPO. I don't think we need that because that isn't you know you need some people to get fuck you money, uh, but you don't need everybody in the firm. You don't need thousands. It, it, it's Not that I mean a, a strong, successful exit within a few, you know a few hundred million dollars is going to be enough to do right. that. And you so, just need a couple of those guys to happen and to not get cold feet. And sell out too early, or get bought by Nokia and then get shut down a couple of years later, or you know any of the, the stuff that's kind of happened. So it's I think it's going to happen, and I'm actually liking the fact that people like Moo and Huddle and uh, Mind Candy and King haven't rushed to go public or sell out or do whatever. You know, they're holding off and they're going to do some big rounds and big deals and whether they list in London or the US is is you know with apologies to to the index guys, I think is a matter for their boards and uh I I wish them luck in whatever they decide. I don't think it has to I don't think you have to list in London uh, although the the financial press here loves talking about people that are listing in London uh, are the index guys pro listing in London yeah what yeah the, okay. what <laughs> so they've made an argument and i think it's quite reasonable which is you know they have firms that are that are at that stage where they can think about doing it um, and their their the position is they think it would be better for London to have more firms list in London but when it comes down to their fiduciary responsibility to their investors, every time they kind of face that choice on an individual case-by-case basis, they list in it's the not US. the best option. Okay, right. Yeah. So, so it's one of these, you know, it, it, classic tragedy of the commons, right? Um, so I think it's a matter of time. Um, I, I think, it, you know, I, I think we'll see an experience of that when autonomy goes because you know they're, they're I don't have any privileged information but they're clearly gearing up to it getting the executive team set up they're restructuring things so autonomy is going to happen um, although most of those guys are out in, in Maidenhead um, you know you'll probably see people that say hey now it's time for me to do something in London rather than out in the Thames Valley just a few more
0: questions Kirk. If, you, if you had to say you sold Open Gamma tomorrow and you signed a non-compete in the industry and you couldn't be in it for like three years but you had to stay in London what, what would you go do
2: um I don't want to give away any of my good ideas. Uh, you don't seem
0: like a guy that wouldn't do anything.
1: Uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so, so
2: maybe the, just the industry or not, not specific idea. Um, I would start another company. Okay. Um, you know, once i had done my uh, time off, um, two weeks. But, well, you know, I I think my fiance might insist on a bit of a more extended holiday than two weeks. Although I'm sure the laptop would would be open uh, various times during during the the, the holiday. Um. So I think it would probably still be in finance um, or fintech, you know, and and probably still in capital markets. I mean, I think one of the things that is uniquely important when evaluating a a kind of capital markets business as opposed to a retail fintech business is the amount of deep domain expertise you have to have on the founding team, right? Um, you, You cannot just hire that stuff in you've got to have it in your DNA kind of very early on um, and I think the exact opposite is important for a, a consumer facing one it, it's it's because it, there you're you're running product from the perspective of the consumer so you're kind of designing for yourself well so I think there aren't that many people that have you know, the desire to build companies and do all that and have the domain expertise and quite frankly there are other areas in uh, capital markets that i think are ripe for disruption and uh, i i am i love playing loki i love going in and saying aha here's a little nice duopoly uh, what happens if we just come in and shake that up a bit yeah, and, and let's what... just open source the hell out of that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 you've seen some some massive companies come about from doing that. Um, so I would definitely do another company, probably in in capital markets. Um, I, I don't really know much more. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't do the whole like Eng- English country gentleman thing. I mean, I think that that's- Hounds, it, uh, the fireplace. You know, I, 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 I joke no. I actually say this, I think one of the reasons why London hasn't had as much of this type of thing it, so one of the things I'm glad this is changing in London is that there is this whole thing in you know traditional English culture, and it could just be a stereotype or whatever. But I know I know of so many people. It's like all of a sudden you get a ton of money, uh, and and you're in your you know late thirties, early forties, whatever. Well, what do you do? Well, you do the English thing of you buy a country home and you go and you live on your country home and you have your hounds and you and you drive your Range Rover to the local pub, and right. you kind of check out economically. and Maybe you still have a pied de terre and you come into town a couple days a week, but you've kind of said, ah, I have enough money. The, the thing I most want to do in life is to retire as early as I can and drop out of the workforce, right? And that's kind of it's been valued by certain sections of society. And it could just be a stereotype. It could just be, I'm a Silicon Valley guy that doesn't understand, but it's definitely a non-American way. of doing. Yeah. No, no, no. Whereas, whereas, you know, you've got, you know, the culture that you need to do this stuff is, is, is again, it's the, I just, uh, you know, sold a company. I've got a lot of zeros in my bank account. I don't, uh, you know, I don't need to work ever again. Right. But I need to work. Right, I'm not working for uh, you know. I'm not I'm not working to retire. I'm working because I have a psychological need to to work.
0: One of the PayPal guys Mm -hmm. said that after he sold out of his shares, he said the following year was like the worst year of his life. Yeah, he had like no goals, nothing to do, didn't know what he was going to do, and it was just a harsh harsh
1: thing. I took a whole year off. Right, and yeah, you lose value of time off. Right, so the first month you really enjoy. And then all of a sudden, you stop appreciating each day that you have off. And so each day you have off incrementally becomes less and less valuable. Towards the end, you're just kind of like, fuck, let me just get back to do something. Right. Because yeah. the harder you work, the more you value your time off, I, I, I think. So keep it short and sweet rather yeah. than right. sort of long.
0: That's well said. You know, uh, Kirk, we always end with the, the advice question. I'm going to hit you with it. If you could make a phone call to the 20-year-old, Kirk Wiley, who's probably hanging out in Berkeley, California, and give that young man a bit of advice, what would you tell him?
2: I would tell him, the first person that proposes marriage to you, say no, <laughs> it will not end well. <laughs> that's a first. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I've asked that question 150 times.
2: And I that, that one. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, like, that's, that's the number one thing I would tell 20-year-old Kirk is, is the first time you get proposed to absolutely say no. And every time you have second thoughts from there up until the day of the wedding, listen to them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Do
0: you think that's good advice for everyone? Every 20 year old, maybe? No, but you said 20 oh, year old okay. Kirk. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, 20 no,
2: no, okay. year old Kirk. Yeah, yeah.
1: Wait, so I'll we see no, a romantic yeah. then. <laughs> 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 All right.
2: On, okay. So, 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 but to a generic person no, no, like me, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. but I'll get to that one
0: on that same note. What's the best bit of advice you've ever received?
2: Best, but um, I think there are two. Uh, one of them is specific to being a techie, which is what I mentioned earlier. Always, always, always work with the smartest people you can. Right? Always, 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 because you're always going to be learning, and it's your highest probability uh, of having a you know a, a significant uh, financial upside as a result. The, the second thing, though, is something that. I really needed to tell 20 year old Kirk, which is, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether it's tech or finance or fashion or retail or advertising, or whatever, the world is a really, really, really small place. And you're going to have to work with people throughout your career, right? You're going to keep running into people over and over and over. Don't be a dick, right? Just just generically in business relations, don't be a dick to people because you never know when it's going to come back to bite you if you are. Have you had experience with that? I was a complete... Prima donna programmer, right? I was one of these guys who was not you, not you, <laughs> me. You know, like I, I was, I, I was quite frankly too smart for my own good. You know, coming, you know, coming out of Berkeley computer science and then going to work for a startup, and you know, I stepped on a lot of toes by just flat out, you know, telling people, ah, oh, his code sucks. I, oh, I don't want to work with it. you know, and and I, I had knowledge but not wisdom. I, I was very immature. I, I was probably too good a programmer for my level of emotional maturity. And then a couple of the people, you know, a few years later were asked, you know, blind references on me and they said, well, you know, he, he's absolutely brilliant, but he's an absolute pain in the ass to work with. I do not recommend hiring him because he's so volatile. He's he, basically, he's a, he's a neg- he's a toxic influence regardless of the quality of, of his coding. Um, and. I think it took me finding out about that to sort of, that that actually, you know, it's not like it killed my career or anything because it's going very well and I had other jobs and whatnot, but I think it took me hearing that, that really, you know, and just generically maturing as a person to to really get that you, you have to work with these people over and over and over again and that, you know, even if you do think somebody on your team is a terrible, Is terrible at their job or is obnoxious or, you know, whatever else, there are polite and impolite ways of handling that. And you should always go for the the polite and mature and professional one rather than, you know, just flying off the handle all the time.
0: Good advice. Good advice. Last bit of that is to the 20 year old that's listening out there. He could be some student in Berkeley listening to this on iTunes. What advice do you give to them? You know, if they want to grow up someday and be like Kirk, you know, or get involved in this, this industry here in London? So
2: I think, so So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat this as kind of a, a specific thing of, of, and the reason why I'm going to do that is that, you know, I've had a lot of various bits in my career uh, and, you know, I, I don't think it's possible to have the exact same background that I've had, but I'm going to tell you say, you know, what happens if you want to end up being a founder of some domain specific tech company, yeah. right? And uh, I think the number one thing is... is that you've got to think ahead right now i happen to fall into this right uh, of saying well i happen to have the silicon valley background so i i look i look at markets and i think of disrupting them and doing go big or go home style deals and open source and all of that and i had the domain expertise from having worked at a bank to see the problems and see how you could build a business around those specific problems Um, if you know that there's a domain that eventually you're going to want to disrupt or do whatever, uh, go into it. You need to acquire the knowledge. You need to, uh, and and, and even, even if that means, you know, doing a normal tech uh, business and then saying, hey, I want to do fintech. So, you know what? I'm going to swallow my pride and I'm going to go work for Morgan Stanley for two years. Or I'm going to go work for JP Morgan. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to acquire that knowledge. And it's going to, you know, I'm, I'm not just going to look at Hacker News and magically and ask Hacker News, what's it like to work in a bank, right? Like you find out what it's like to work in a bank by working in a bank, right? You find out what it's like to to do FX trading by doing FX trading or sitting next to an FX trader or going onto the trading desk on a regular basis. That's how you, you acquire this stuff. So either acquire the domain knowledge that you need expensively for you in terms of time or what I love about the kind of halo story is the seren- And it's kind of true of me is the serendipity of saying, you know, I did something else before what I'm doing now. Right. And now as a, as someone that's doing something, I have a unique sympathy for what that's like. And so I'm going to go from being a taxi driver to starting a, a tech startup for taxi drivers. Right. Or, uh, you know, I'm going to go from being an architect at a uh, investment bank to writing software for architects and, and investment banks. And so, it, it's never too late to do a tech startup, right? Never, because if you are in an industry, you just look for what's broken in that industry. You look for what isn't working. You look for those couple guys that need shaken up. You look for for areas of inefficiency, um, and, and that's why you know some of these. You know, it can sometimes be hard to make a $100 billion company out of doing that. But, you know, a lot of these, these successes that are quietly unsung, um, you know, and I don't think it's, it's quiet anymore, but people like Halo and, you know, all the, the travel booking companies and whatnot, they're coming at it because they knew the domain going in and they solved a problem and they solved a real need for people.
0: Good advice. We had Brian Taylor from Pixelpin here. And right. yeah. He was in his 50s mm-hmm. or something. And he was just yeah. like, what advice do you have for people your age? And he was like, do a startup. Yeah. You know, which was like, you know, when it was fantastic, you know, anyone can get involved in, and disrupt this industry. Yeah. Um, and I
1: think that's important, like in your domain where you understand. Yeah. I think some people try to start up, do a startup for the sake of doing a startup and maybe have no idea of where they're going into or what they're getting themselves into. So I think that's good advice, you know, spend time working in something or, 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 yeah. or, or acquire that knowledge from from people early on in your team. Yeah, we've heard this yeah. mothers do what you know, right? Yeah, do something yeah. to, in which and, you and know. solve the need which you hit both of them.
2: It, or 20 um ignore the whole cultural insanity of starting your first startup right out of university but you do not know what you're doing. Um, you know, take a few years, you know, a 24-year-old is still going to have good pattern recognition. Uh, You know, you don't have to just live in a house with with your friends and code, you know, spend a few years working at a firm that has people that you respect and learn your craft because, you know, you, you may be a good hacker, you may be a good computer scientist, but, you know, what you never are coming out of university is a good software engineer, right? That, you know, that takes craftsmanship And it's an apprenticeship. You just got to, you got to learn by doing and you got to learn by doing with good people.
0: Good advice, Kirk. How do people get a hold of you? If people was watching this video, I'm sure there's going to be some hedge fund guys that are watching this late there night somewhere, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you do we get
2: that's a hold?" Our
1: audience, I don't know if there's hedge funds listening to uh, us. I'd yeah, be surprised. <laughs> how do people
2: get in touch with you? Uh, open Gamma, the whole thing. So I'm probably I'm one of the easiest people to get in touch with in the world. Everyone uh, always says that when they're in this. Uh-huh. Well, interesting. It's interesting. If you Google me, there appear to be two Kirk Wileys in the world uh, that that have a an internet presence. There's me, and then there's this guy that does this terrible masonry work somewhere in ohio um terrible oh no no find it it's kirk (laughs) wiley masonry uh sorry if you if you're seeing this (laughs) dude but but the crazy paving fireplaces is Uh, so 1970s um so you know i'm kirk at opengamma.com right i am uh uh, Kirk W Y on Twitter. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Although, uh, I prefer not to have a first contact be like adding me to your network because I get probably LinkedIn is, is primarily a spam generator for me at the moment. Um, just reach out, uh, go to the website. There's forms say get in touch. Uh, you know, yeah.
0: Fantastic, good stuff, Kirk. Thanks so much for sure. coming on. Uh, you know, you're a super intense guy. I wish you guys all the luck. I, I got my, you know, I'm, got my bets on you. Yeah. You know, as far as cracking this industry. Thank you it's very much. Really exciting stuff. I love the whole open source thing. Um, Siliconreal.com. It's out. It's looking great. You know, we're, we're going to take new
1: website. Yeah, it looks, yeah looks, Loves love the site.
0: Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate yeah. it. We'll be taking a picture after this. You know, and we need help,
1: video. guys. Come on. If we you're did. young, if you're looking to learn, get into the tech industry, reach out to us. Um, you know, it's a new year coming up soon, new goals, new ideas. Maybe you can start, start working for us and helping us out because, uh, we need it we need it yeah and you can't do much
0: but I mean like in the last 25 weeks we've met 25 of the top coolest most interesting people in this whole business and so uh, yeah come work with us help us do some biz dev you know do some promotion that kind of thing guarantee it'll change your life so do that if you're listening to us on iTunes come to uh, see our beautiful faces at uh, at our YouTube channel Silicon Real the website siliconreal.com we're on Twitter it's all good uh, we're going to continue doing this. If you've got any guest suggestions, we'd love to hear them as well. So yeah. as we say on Silicon Reel, it's about the people. That's the damn truth. Thanks, Kirk. Wish you all the best.
2: Thank you for having me on. All right, guys. Take care. Fundamentally, you can pretty much run a dot-com anywhere in the world. But the, you know, the key thing with us is it's face-to-face, B2B sales to, to, the, um, to these large institutions. And if you're, if you're sat miles away, they're not going to come and visit you. In, in our case, we've actually got nicer offices than some of the banks that we work with, which is it's quite amazing for a startup. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's just great.
0: And I don't think you can emphasize enough like how hard it is to get a meeting at a bank, yeah. and then to get the next meeting, and then to get it pushed. Yeah. It's just such... did, did
1: you try?